Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with James Nokise, friend of the podcast. He is doing two shows at the Edinburgh Fringe at the moment. One is called Talk a Big Game, which is about sport. And the other one is Britain, we need to talk about the Gollywogs or let's talk about the Gollywogs. Just Google him. If you are in Edinburgh, go see both of those shows. They are both excellent. We had a really fascinating chat about things like inherited trauma, what he is wrestling with at the moment, and uh, New Zealand politics. So I hope that's something that you're interested in. Even if you're not, he makes it interesting. Thank you, everybody, who's been coming to see Ethos at Edinburgh. That's 7.55 at Bristow Square Underbelly, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, but also uh the trilogy if you're not in edinburgh is available online uh, as the alice fraser trilogy and you can find that on any of your kind of podcasting platforms or on the abc website or just by googling the alice fraser trilogy abc podcasts it'll come up i hope uh thank you everybody who supports the patreon and who has been messaging me there or organizing to skype or reading my blogs there It's really lovely uh, to feel supported in that way and I appreciate it very much. That's enough from me. I will talk to you next week. You are having tea with Alice. Right. Um, Just going to check the levels. Checking levels. Here Um, we go. And uh, so, hello. Hello. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, my name is James Nokise. Uh, hello again, listeners. I am drinking a licorice peppermint tea. And why are you drinking a licorice peppermint tea? Uh, because I foolishly got a cold before the Edinburgh Fringe Festival started. And oh, it has, an idiot. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's ravaged my vocal cords, and so I've been playing catch-up for like three weeks now. Um, but I'm set, I've settled into a quite a nice lower baritone. Ah, oh, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing what it does to your voice. I quite like it when my voice gets rasped up because it makes me feel like a film noir lady. Yeah, yeah, it's a very Lauren Bacall kind of vibe. I, even mine, I'm I'm sitting in a, a range of octave, which uh, it's, it's sort of uncomfortable to my ears, but quite pleasant to my lower jaw because oh, the vibrations <laughs> from the bass is like, oh, this guy, I, I wish I could speaking this level most of the time I genuinely remember as a kid because mum used to take us to the opera um, she was a musician and so she got special uh, lower price tickets when we were mm. little and uh just loving the baritones and being genuinely sad when I realised that as a woman I would never be a baritone. Oh, right. And like especially like bass, ba- bass baritones like Sarastro in uh, uh, The Magic Flute. Where it's like just I, uh, ground shaking. Ugh, no, on the same in a similar way um, to R and B as far as I grew up in, everyone wanted to be like the tenor because the tenor got the solo moment, you know, like uh-huh. the hero moment of the song. And it was sort of when um, the late nineties when R and B got a bit more gangster with Jodeci and Casey and Jojo that the idea of the um, uh, the alto tenor and, and sort of the um, Casey from Casey and Jojo and um, uh, Cisco from Drew Hill, that kind of raspy sound. So people were now breaking their vocal cords uh, to try and get that kind of raspiness. But I, I was always in a, I was always kind of a, a bass baritone. Ugh, I, I envy you. Job. I envy you. I, uh, I mean, I remember in choir I used to sing alto, but that was mainly because I could sing the um, harmonies. It's good for crowd control. 
Oh. I find, you know, so you, whimsy you kind of need to be a bit more higher up as I'm sort of pushing my voice up naturally. And uh, but if you want to tell off kids, you just drop down. You're like, hey, boys, settle down. They're like, oh, <laughs> sorry, uncle. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> I. I d- genuinely remember um, starting off in improv when I was terrible but there was an improv class uh, at Sydney Uni, not a class really just a talk and one of of these ladies who'd been doing it for years uh, she said two things that I found very interesting, one was lower your voice for the stage Mm -hmm. because if you get shrill people don't listen (laughs) which is a a terrible and sad indictment and you sort of feel like it shouldn't be that way but in a pragmatic way I definitely did lower my voice for stage Mm. Uh, now I'm sort of more confident in my ability to control the crowd I will sometimes go up into Mm. a bit of squealing (laughs) you know moderate squealing Uh, but uh, also the thing she said was when you come on stage high status just watch for how quickly the guys come on and come over you in status they'll you'll come on uh, as a major general and they'll come on as the king and then if you keep one-upping them if you don't let them take higher status Mm. just wait and see how long it takes for them to shoot you in the head in the scene interesting just as an experiment and i don't know how much things have changed because this is 10 years ago now but uh certainly it was like clockwork Wow. You know, you'd come in and say, Captain, show me, show me your working or whatever it yeah. was. And they'd be like, Mom. And he'd be yeah, like, right, right. I'm not your mother. I'm your captain. Yeah. And within three minutes, they'd shoot you in the head and get you off the scene. It was f- oh, just, yeah. and they were lovely people, like lovely boys. But obviously needs to have conversations with their mothers. <laughs> right. but it was, yeah, it was really just a really interesting uh, dynamic. Anyway, speaking of dynamics, what have you been wrestling with of late? What have I been wrestling with? Um, I've been wrestling with the relevance of my show from last year, uh, Britain Let's Talk About the Gollywogs. And the reason I've been wrestling with it is because it has come to my attention during this run that it is more relevant this year than it was last year because of an escalation in perceptions and escalation narrative and oratory about race uh, in Britain and I find that deeply sad (laughs) yeah this is one of those terrible things about the idea of progress is that it isn't linear you know it's one of those it is it's a fascinating thing yeah you're right do you think it's going backwards or do you think it's like a just a kickback in the movement towards something better or do you think we're headed towards a more it's interesting because a lot of the time when comedians do social commentary I find apart from the true mavericks who are painfully ahead uh, of, of the narrative by which I mean they're, they're your ones who are seeing things with, with such a clear vision often because of the way their brain is wired up that they're five years, or in horrible cases, ten years. And uh, the reason I say horrible is because it isolates them so much. Mm. There is a loneliness to being able to, to make comedy that far in the future about society. Um, but otherwise, uh, the rest of us mere transgressors are sort of on the, on the... We're surfers. We're on the edge of the wave. 
So we're making a show about a social situation, but then that show only has a shelf life of a couple of years on that topic because society evolves. Yeah. And so, you know, if I'm doing material about gay marriage, it has a relevance in Australia, but it's least relevant in the UK uh, to a degree. Yeah. You know, as we get further and further away from the human rights debates and the legislation that's passed and we move forward as society, um, it becomes less immediate, that stuff. What's happened this year is because maybe of Brexit or something like that, probably because of Brexit, but also the outside influences of the American president and just the way the narrative is framed. Race in Britain is suddenly tense in a different way mm. where people realize that there's an issue but they're not sure what the... It's like everyone can see the smoke, but no one's quite sure what the fire is. Yeah, or where it is, or who to attribute it to, or who to blame it on. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. I've noticed more and more, maybe because I am better at my job, or maybe because it is a thing, that there are places in my show where I will say something... And for some segments of the audience, I'm not going far enough. And for some segments of the audience, I'm going way too far. Mm. And that's a very difficult bridge to straddle. You can only really straddle it with charm, if you know yeah. what I mean. No, completely what I know what you mean. And it's, I've had the same thing with my show. And it's um, interesting because I remember one of the conversations, and this is a helpful thing about building your shows in a society like New Zealand. One of the conversations I had early on with Let's Talk About the Gollywogs was who is the show for? Um, and it was uh, a Pacific Islander saying it to me. And I said, well, it's for different people in different ways. For people, for people of color, the show is much more a cathartic release of in-jokes. Um, but I have aimed it specifically at non-people of color, specifically at um, people who want to have the conversation but feel intimidated by the conversation. That's who the show is made for. Mm. If you're a person of color and you're talking about gollywogs, you're like two decades. Like this is an old. Like this is your parents' conversation. Yeah. So a lot of the time they come in and going, yeah, these are cool points, and I'm trying. If anything, it's just if you haven't got a framework to work with non-people of color, the show can give you a framework. Yes. But that's like in terms and and Pacific Islanders at the time struggled with that idea that I was making, I wasn't making Pacific work and you can come in and see it for yourself and take away what you want. I was making specific work for specific audiences to hit them very targeted. So now that is really interesting. I saw a documentary, a Vice documentary. I recommend you look at it because I still don't know what I think about it. Um, a documentary about a channel in America. It's online channel. It's, I think it's subscription only, mm. made by veterans for veterans. Mm. And it is extremely black transgressive humour. And I mean black in black humour rather than in a racialized sense. And they, it's, it's very graphic. It's very laddish even though some veterans mm. are women and some veterans who subscribe to this are women and mm. who enjoy it are women but it is that kind of battlefield humor where mm. there are, there's no target off limits where the the reality of life and death situations makes a comedy of any kind sort of a necessity mm. and often really brutal and crude comedy so jokes about trans people jokes about mm. suicide jokes about um you know, people in the Middle East, jokes mm. about all, all of those things, about terrorists and uh, 
rape and everything. Mm. And this woman from Vice, this documentary maker, the reporter, I'm not sure, documentarian, mm. uh, she goes in with a very, very liberal, small L liberal view. Mm. She comes in very disapproving of it. Mm. And it's incredibly uncomfortable mm. because for these people they see it as a kind of a, a survival thing for people with PTSD it's something that they they bond over it's something that is integral to their identity to be able to make these jokes within these closed confines mm. and I don't know how I feel about it because I definitely didn't enjoy her approach to it which was to come in mm. very clearly disapproving of it and very clearly judgmental of it but those are jokes that I wouldn't defend and I don't I, I don't know how much of it is that thing of like <laughs> I don't want to fall on the well it's just locker room talk this is not the kind of talk that is meant to be heard because we're living in a world now where that stuff is almost any joke you tell in any location can become universalized and the the audience for that joke can become anybody it's a it's a really interesting thing i'd if, like to know what you think of it if you if do if the setting was and I apologise to any listeners for the clumsiness of my language because I'm I'm working a little bit outside of my <laughs> uh, parameters. Well, here. that's what I want for this podcast. This is genuinely but, something I don't know what to feel about it, and I don't have to feel anything about it. But it was something that raised some questions for me. If the channel was run by um, I don't know what the modern term is, mentally handicapped people, mm. and was for mentally handicapped people mm. would there be such an issue well i mean you mean sort of intellectual disabilities Intellect versus that was the term i was reaching for My versus apologies. emotionally arguably these people are emotionally disabled or crippled or whatever it happens to be they, they have some terrible emotional damage as is almost I would say almost universal. I, if I you think are in, in 2018 we can safely say that soldiers, uh, almost universally, with rare exceptions, uh, have forms of mental scarring. Yeah, damage. And that is entirely uh, because of the way in which they are trained. The training process is to dehumanize people to a point where an order to kill is obeyed without question. Because that's why we have soldiers. Mm. Um, and that's the job. And I, I have not met a soldier who would disagree with that job. They would be uncomfortable to talk about that job, which yeah. I've not, I can always tell actual soldiers who've been on tour. Because I, I perform to military gigs occasionally uh, in um, the UK and um, Australia and New Zealand. And I can always tell the ones who've been deployed and the ones who have just been on base because the ones who've been deployed, they use evasive language. Mm -hmm. um, except, of course, with their, uh, as they might call it, lads. Yeah. You know, and they, and that is the camaraderie of people who have been in very intense life or death situations and need psychological releases. Yes. Yeah, so in the environment that we're in now, you know, where you have... So uh, we're, 
So this is the thing, right? So you have jokes that certain people can sell, tell to certain people. Mm. And at the moment, that's geared towards, for example, people of colour. You, you remember the Dave Chappelle stuff that mm. used to be you know, very transgressive, deliberately mm. shocking, deliberately provocative. He ended up backing off that because he realised that he was talking to an audience that wasn't his audience, that there were people laughing, I think, as he said, for the wrong reasons. Yeah, he heard the laugh in the wrong bit of the joke. Yeah. That's, I think that's a famous quote. Yeah, and so, so there's this thing where there, there are certain types of jokes. I can certainly tell jokes that, as a woman that you can't tell as a man or you'd have to tell them in a very different way or coming from a very mm. different angle. And so should there be this licence given to men who are, you know, theoretically, structurally, in mainstream society, uh, privileged but have this very particular, you know, terrible... Um, experience that gives them this identity, that gives them this space. And well, I think it's like if, if one of those guys was to take their humour on stage at your mainstream comedy club, well, there's a very high chance that it's going to fail and offend and, you know, cause a ruckus. Um, and, and so I guess that's where you have to go, well, what are we actually watching here? You know, sometimes you're watching comedy and you go, oh, this is really more theatre. Mm. I, I would cue Hello. the siren. <laughs> Hello, fire engine. I hope you're solving someone's problem. Someone is definitely trying to burn down Edinburgh. There I are mean, a lot of I fire engines running I did not know how many fires happen a day and night until we all moved into this flat. There, is a, there are a lot of cats up trees in Edinburgh, I think. A lot of old ladies that need a road crossed. Fair enough. If I, if I was an old lady and I knew that there would be fire trucks full of men coming to help me across the road, if I just asked, I would press that buzzer on a weekly basis. I saw a very nice pair of police people uh, the day before yesterday holding an old lady's hand and walking her across the road. Oh, Made me very on. happy. See? But here's the thing. Is that, uh, what, what are we watching? If, I mean, that, that, from my accounts, that TV channel is not for us. No. It's not for public consumption. No. It is specifically uh, a channel for people who have served and fought. Am yeah. I getting this right? So is that a comedy channel? And does it deserve to be treated as a comedy channel or as a therapy channel? A very exclusive form of post-traumatic therapy that people grow out of. Or people use for like it's. But the, I mean, there is no barrier to entry. Anyone can subscribe to this channel, or even though it's directed to a particular audience, and then it sort of generalizes out. I mean, we don't have to have an answer. This is kind of just mm. no, no. It's but, uh, it's, but it generalizes out to, for example, uh, Trevor Noah's defense of his joke about indigenous women, which he said I said in the environment of uh, South Africa, where the racial. Politics are different and it's a different time and, and, and so on, particularly, particularly the different time defence of mm. when you take a joke that was told in a particular political cultural environment and it was okay then or perceived to be okay then and how can you judge anything other than by its context... Mm. And like I, I really, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it is a, it's one of these things that I really have... I have no gut sense of what the right answer is. Well, I, I think sometimes the right answer is, what, who, is it, who is it for? 
Yeah. Like, that's where you find the answer. Who is this show for? Who, if what we do is art, if we are artists, don't, are we like, is, I think the difference between art and therapy and the way they can overlay is the audience. Mm. Sometimes you make something for yourself, completely for yourself, but um, other people will pay you for it. That's kind of a chancing kind of thing. But, you know, and you know that we know these artists who just by, as a byproduct of their artistic output, which was their only way of emotional expression, mm. people wanted to buy stuff and so it fed into their ability. Mm. But most people are making work for people to see. Mm. And so I, and I'm a kind of person who makes work going, well, what do I want the person to feel when I see this? How do I want them to leave? And what is the different responses that can happen? Yeah, certainly that's been a driver in in my stuff before. I, I often think about the difference between what you say and what people hear. And I, mean, pl- I, I play with that sometimes, I think, to my detriment or the audience's detriment. I will say things that sound shocking mm. until you think about them. And the massive risk of that is that someone will be so shocked that they won't think about it. Yeah, and, you can, and that can happen. Um, so, like, I'll give an example. Like, there's a line in my show where I'm talking about a creepy guy and I say, he's a lovely man. He's creepy, but he's lovely. Like, he wouldn't rape you if you asked him not to. Yeah, right. And that's a, yeah. that's a thing that people have a real visceral reaction to and they don't quite know even how to hear that sentence. I, I remember... Um, I was talking about consent, which I do in, in my shows. It's just a byproduct. I, um, I've done work with the Sexual Abuse Prevention Network in high schools back in New Zealand and trying to take some of those lessons which work very well on 14 or 15-year-olds and apply them to drunk 20-something-year-olds mm. and seem to find a comedic way through. But I, I had someone come up to me afterwards and said, well, have you ever been raped? Uh, and we're not going to have that conversation. No. Um, neither here on this thing or that but I said to them rather than go into a debate or like well, I said can I just ask are you a survivor and do you actually want me to answer that question or is there something you need to say to me and they had they had been they, they were a survivor of a sexual assault uh, and they, they had been triggered uh, and I just listened I didn't argue uh, I didn't try and make myself like a hero. Like, yes, well, actually, I think you'll find the whole purpose of this material is to blah, 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 blah. They said their piece. I thanked them for sharing with it. I said I was very sorry that they would take him back into their trauma mm. um, by the material. Um, and, then, and then we just had to part ways because there was nowhere left for us to go. I was not the person who could heal their trauma. Mm. They had had a thing happen. I asked, did, were they there with people? Did they have people nearby? They said yes. Um, we parted ways. You can't control sometimes who's in the audience or what they'll hear. With people who've seen my stuff on race, they've been victims of racial attack, and they'll question my racial credentials, which again is fine. Uh, like, and so is I, it? I, yeah, I know, I know my family very well. Yeah. Uh, I come <laughs> I don't carry my genealogy uh, uh, in my back pocket, but I do have an email from my dad listing all the villages that I'm related to in Samoa. <laughs> just on, on occasion, you never know who's in the audience. But I think it's important. One thing I noticed, I'm thinking of your vice journalist, like she's coming from a politically left 
yeah. background. And then you get people, you know, the political right and that. And I think people go, oh, extremists on both sides. I, I don't think that's the thing. I think empathy. I think, or it sounds like the vice journalist had an issue with having empathy for these soldiers because she already had an, a, an opinion on soldiers, not these soldiers. I think she had pre, pre-assigned her empathy. She'd assigned it to the people she perceived as the potential victims of this kind of humour rather than to the people who were creating this humour. Mm. I think. I, I, don't, I don't know, but she was, she was sort of coming in from this very particular environment and carrying that environment with her. And she sort of seemed to, and again, I'm not 100% sure on her personal motivations, but in the, the way it came across in the piece, she seemed to be trying to impose that set mm. of parameters on these people without, without allowing their explanation of where they'd come from to impact mm. or influence. But then on the other hand, for example, in the closed room of a gentleman's club mm. full of old white men in that environment, is it okay for them to do terrible racial sexist jokes if it's never going to leave those four walls? To be fair, there's no gentleman's club for the old white men. They're doing terrible racist sexist things. Yeah. Jokes are probably the least destructive of the terrible racist sexist things <laughs> that are happening in that gentleman's club. Yeah. 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 I just, I just don't, I just don't know how I feel about it, which is a really interesting Thing. I mean, it's p- perspective um, is, is sort of very important. I think, like, and again, it's not, it's not that I'm necessarily defending soldiers. I just know that mental trauma does strange things to people's brains. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, was, I found myself while watching this documentary very much on the side of the soldiers of, like, it's not for you, lady. Hmm. That's what I felt. But then equally, some of the stuff was horrendous, like stuff that I would never... Uh, condone in the open air but again as you say it's it's not yeah I, I just it's a really huh you know well yeah I mean it's, and it's sort of like there are, I, it's interesting the way that we I find it fascinating as someone who performs to soldiers but um, does not have it in me <laughs> I've argued with soldiers about this because I go look I couldn't do your job I couldn't pull the trigger I, I couldn't pull the trigger. And they go, no, I think in the right situation you could. And I go, I don't know. I'd also don't want to waste a half hour debate on this with a soldier. Um, but here's, here's my thinking is that a soldier is dehumanized and rebuilt with a set of skills. Yeah, and it's then like after clown the, school. And uh, Yeah, it's exactly like clown school or theater school, mm-hmm. which I have a lot of... I've gone on record critiquing drama schools for that particular psychological abuse. Because mm. if you drop out of drama school, then you're just a broken human being who hasn't been given all of the fundamental tools to rebuild your psyche yet. Yes, yes. Here's the thing. With soldiers use them up and we get them to pull the trigger until they can't pull the trigger no more and then we don't have enough services so like any group of trauma victims they're going to find their own ways but what we also do in society is we give non-soldiers the ability to come as close to living that soldier life 
as possible without being soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know, we give them access to weapons. We allow them to go and, and shoot uh, as much ammo as they can buy. You know, we, we, they can access these channels with soldier humor. You know, there are people out there who dress and act like soldiers who have not been over to war. And so they don't have the weight of the trauma, which I think actually keeps a lot of like soldiers in check is that above all of the like weird thing, they've got this insane perspective that the rest of us don't have of taking a life. You know, of of being in armed conflict, and that I think that's I'm not saying that's a thing that we should all have. What I'm saying is there is such a weight to that trauma, mm. psychological snapping almost, because mm. it goes against human nature to kill humans. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think so too. I think that in the right circumstances, many people will become violent, but I think there is uh, something. But it's an extreme action. It's not a natural action. I mean, most soldiers in first uh, contact with the enemy will shoot not at the enemy. They'll shoot above the heads of the enemy. It it is a... We literally came up with the concept of the warning shot. (laughs) Because it's not our natural thing. I mean, look, let's dive away from um, debating armed forces to Rowan Atkinson, which is also in the same universe we're in this podcast. Yes, that's a really interesting thing. Do you want to kind of explain the in- well, Boris, thing? Uh, Boris Johnson, who is the is an MP, still, who knows what he is. He's a clown and he's in British politics. Um, and he's, he's trying to make a very soft run at being the Prime Minister once the current Prime Minister resigns out of sheer frustration. And... <laughs> He had made a joke about uh, women who are in burkas um, looking like letterboxes. A very popular joke from 19-something or other. Yeah. Um, that, uh, which no stand-up comedian worth a pound, a single pound, would make that joke on a stage. Mm. Unless they were deconstructing it to deconstruct society's views of it. See, that's, I did a joke like that in Ethos, uh, sorry, in Empire, actually, about uh, women's clothing. So it looks like I'm going down that path of, you know, it, it being a visual gag, whatever mm. it happens to be. You know, you've, you've seen all the letterbox ninja, mm. uh, set of Venetian blinds, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Um, and then I take a sharp left turn out of that and be like, it, it's about... Not not just the free choice to wear what you want, but the things that inform that choice. Of course, you know, a woman who, for example, has extreme plastic surgery is making a free choice, but there's a lot of stuff that goes into making that choice about how a woman should look that makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm. And there, wa- there was one night in that show where a, a person in the audience seriously objected halfway through the joke to the direction she thought it was going in. Which is fair enough, fine. I, I would have liked to have earned. Though, right? Yeah, it was. It was. That's that's, a, that's a, when you are jarred so much that you lose faith in the performer halfway through the joke. Yeah, and that's my problem. That is me not having earned her trust enough to have gi- given given me the benefit of the doubt for the thirty seconds more it would have taken to get to the point of that joke. 
but nowadays everything can be taken out of context and so maybe I should be more careful about jokes like that which I enjoy very much I enjoy those jokes where you'll push into a discomfort and then pull back out of it in an, an interesting way to give mm. you a different angle on a different perspective on a different uh, different light but yeah we are you know maybe I do need to be significantly more careful about stuff like that because I can't this is the other thing as well. People who are traumatised, this is going to sound bad, <laughs> context, aren't, necessar- aren't necessarily the best people to assess whether something is objectively harmful because they have an injury. Oh, completely. But, and, that, and then that comes down on us as performers, though, to read that. Yeah. yeah and, and, and again, that comes down to just... Sometimes, sometimes you're the bad guy. Yeah. Even when you're the good guy, you're the bad guy. I mean, that's what Empire is about. It's about villains and non-villains. But yes. So it's, you know, and I think this is the hilarious thing to me, because I do find it hilarious, the, of Rowan Atkinson's defense of free speech, is that he came out and did a speech. Um, now, if you are going to watch the speech, listeners, I do recommend first just watching it without the sound on because it's very funny <laughs> watching one of the greatest clowns in British history giving an impassioned speech when you can't hear what he's saying because it literally looks like a combination of Johnny English and Blackadder and <laughs> the dude from Thin Blue Line. His facial expressions, his movements, you go, oh, you, your body language is so in tune to performance that even when you're trying to be serious, you've got the little raised eyebrow and sort of like whimsical questioning looks here and there. And then you turn the volume on and you hear what he's saying. And there's some interesting points. And that's probably the biggest compliment I can say to it because a lot of it is about anything can be a joke. And the gist is that the best way to make things inoffensive is to allow them to be said so much that they lose their power, which is a flawed argument because it doesn't take into account generational trauma. And I think a lot of free speech arguments skip over the concept of generational trauma, particularly when it comes to the United Kingdom and the United States, because that is intrinsically linked to colonization. Mm. And so it's... uh, So do you want to explain the idea of generational trauma for anyone who's not 100% across it? Well, generational trauma, it's it's basically just layering trauma uh, on each generation. So it's like you've got a generation... They've got the first contact with um, a technologically advanced society that society then uh, enslaves them. Um, They then uh, are emancipated, uh, but then conscripted um, into a a war which has nothing to do with them, has something to do with uh, the colonizer. So you've got trauma there of first contact, enslavement, uh, and then war. So let me just kind of kind of try and echo that back and you can tell me if I've got it right. So you have people who are slaves and mm-hmm. their children mm-hmm. have parents who are or were slaves mm-hmm. and ha- carry that 
trauma onto their children because mm. if your parents have been traumatized, they behave in certain ways, the way they interact with you is changed, the mm. way you are taught to view the world is changed, and then you, the children, mm. are conscripted, you say. Yeah, or yeah, you go into fight war. But, but then I'm not talking about you as the child. That's your, your grandparents. Now, your, your parents is the child of that person who went to war. Mm-hmm. And they're growing up in a society now uh, where uh, the people in, who are authorities, uh, they're um, racially profiling. Uh, so your parents are the ones who are running from the police or getting shot by the police, depending on what country you're in, or, or um, being stopped by the police. So you grow up with your parents uh, fearing the police, your grandparents having fought in the war, your great-grandparents having been slaves, mm-hmm. and your great-great-grandparents having been from a completely different cultural environment to the one that you live in now. So there is no point at which you have had what could be termed a kind of a healthy integration opportunity, even if integration were the goal, which it isn't necessarily. It's like having a series of cardiac arrests through your genealogical history. Uh-huh. So the, the, the cultural ties you would feel have all of these massive traumatic events. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is that non-people of colour, which is a very clumsy term, but let's talk, let's talk in a specific. Caucasian Europeans can completely relate to this mm-hmm. because especially in Europe, people whose grandparents fought in the war more often than not have parents who are, you know, pretty kind of like traumatised because their dads or their mums came back and didn't talk about the war Mm. and were like, you know, deeply silent people or deeply um, racist or deeply uh, alcoholic, you know. All the, yeah, all the various manifestations of shell shock, which was the first mass experience of that kind of trauma. Yeah. of, of, Of that very shocking encounter with mechanized warfare for the first time and gener- in this thing generational trauma it's not a it's not a skin racial color thing it's just a thing but it can be a, it can come about in different ways and race is one of them yeah well that yeah that is uh, very sensical how much do you buy into and I, d- I really don't know how f- firm the science is on it. i think it's pretty firm on the, the play of epigenetic factors in that, like not just the learning experience of having this relationship with your parents who shape your view of the world, mm. shaping your view of the world and then passing that on that and the, the distortions that go through the generations, but then also that there is some element. So, for example, it is pretty proven science that I am more likely to have anxiety or eating disorders because my grandmother was in the Holocaust and that the children of men who survived Vietnam mm. um, are much more likely to commit suicide than children of people who didn't go to Vietnam, even if they never knew their parents, even if they were taken away and adopted out or whatever that happens to be. So there is some genetic element to that inherited trauma well, as well as a social element. My granddad 
uh, on my British side was racist. And I do a lot of racial comedy. So there's something in that, probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they say religiosity is, is um, heritable. So that even if your parents are very religious, if your parent is kind of an evangelical religious person, even mm. if you are an atheist, you are statistically, and again, statistics are what they are. Everyone, mm. There are always many, many exceptions to any statistic, but that you're more likely to be an evangelical atheist. Mm, I can understand that. I've met a lot of atheists who are ITs. Um, and you, you scratch the surface and it turns out their grandparent was a preacher or something like that. Well, your father is a preacher and you're pretty evangelical about, for example, consent. This is true. But <laughs> I, I mean, and I've been called out on it as well in terms of sometimes I'm performing at a political rally or something like that. And um, I know, go, man, you weren't real American preacher style on that. And I go, oh, yeah, that stuff runs. But again, that's that's what you learn as you grow up. You know, my, my comedy... Um, does a lot of emotional manipulation mm. uh, in my one-hour shows especially. But I, I grew up with... My grandfather was a preacher as well. My, my aunties and uncles are preachers. I have nine in my immediate family. And, and that's, you know... So in terms of performance and how you perceive performance and human interaction between a performer and an audience, uh, that stuff rubs off. It also means I'm self-aware enough to, when I'm making my shows and trialing my shows be aware of when we go off topic from social commentary comedy into just straight up preaching. Um, yeah. Because I feel if my, if my punters come to see a comedy show and get a sermon, I've, I've, done, I've tricked them. I've done them dirty. Um, I want them to have a joyful experience uh, and maybe learn a thing or two um, but I don't want them to come away feeling sermonized. See, that's a really interesting thing because I think that that is in itself, uh, I think the most effective way to preach to the current generation of comedy goers is that they don't feel like you've, they like they've been preached to mm. and you see that in you know the way that advertising is very disingenuously pretending not to care nowadays because you know, that's our generation is quite cynical about mm. about any sort of um message which is interesting also to me because i find our generation is actually also quite ignorant yes and it's i i think it's because we have all the information available on our phones and so, ironically, we don't really go looking for information. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those problems because holding information in your head is one of the most useful ways to analyse it mm. rather than just perceiving it and passing it on if you have to absorb it and then reproduce it. I mean, that's what schooling is for, mm. synthesising, analysing deconstructing a lot of that stuff happens inside you it doesn't happen on the page it doesn't happen on the internet it doesn't happen when you're juggling tweets it happens when you think about something for a while and you or you explain it to somebody else or you you try to explain it for some to somebody else and realize you actually don't know what you're talking about which is my life yeah it's usually the first <laughs> draft of everyone's preview show yeah <laughs> it's halfway yeah. through you go oh i don't know what i'm talking about this needs a rewrite yeah well that horrible moment when you're sitting in someone else's show or in like a comedy showcase and there's a comedian like talking about something and it's got nothing to do 
with your show, but it just sparks off a chain of thoughts and then you've suddenly got a note and you've got the conundrum of needing to pull out your phone and make the note, but not want to be that person who pulls out a phone in a comedy gig and you're just trying to spend the rest of the gig trying to remind yourself of the notes. Yeah, you either either pull out your phone and be that idiot in the audience with a phone or you pull out a notebook and become that weird girl who's probably a reviewer. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And it becomes Schrodinger's joke. Yeah, yeah. That's the worst. I think we're running out of time because I've got to head off in a minute and you uh, probably do too. Yeah, that's Um, true. But we can do this again. We're staying in the same flat in Edinburgh. I will definitely have you back. I always like uh, talking to you. Sorry for like throwing the things that are troubling me at you when I was asking you about what's uh, in your wrestling pen. No, that's fine. I think that's the spirit of our shows Mm -hmm. uh, in a way. It's like, uh, look, these are the things on my mind, guys, but actually... You know, I get people to come in and say, the show's called Let's Talk About Gollywogs. Uh, and then they come in and I tell them about my family racial trauma uh, <laughs> while also flashing a gollywog every 10 minutes to make sure <laughs> that they still get their money's worth. <laughs> yep. I saw a gollywog. Tick. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had one review, which was very funny. Uh, to me, it was very funny. But it said, uh, wasn't as funny as I thought it would be. Uh, and uh, the, didn't have as many gollywogs as I thought it would be. And I just kept on thinking, did you think you were coming for a show of just gollywog jokes for an hour? Was, um, yeah, t- when, they, when, when a reviewer says what they thought the show was going to be and is, uh, gives you a bad review because it wasn't that thing, I find that annoying. But my favourite thing at the moment to do is take my really good reviews. I don't... I get my people to send... Mm. My people... Um, I get you me, have people, Alice Fraser. Don't pretend you I have. get my people to send me, like, really nice reviews. I don't want to see the bad reviews during mm. the Fringe. I know what's wrong with my show. Mm. You either like it or you don't. But uh, I take the good reviews and I pull the worst quote out of them. I've noticed that. I've quite enjoyed seeing you do that. I was tempted <laughs> to do that with one. I like that too. Five stars and then, like, the bad yep. quote. Yeah. A confusing magpie. Just the most... <laughs> Anyway, it's fun to me. Where can people find you online, James? Uh, at James Nokise, N-O-K-I-S-E, uh, on Twitter, and at J Nokise on Facebook. Uh, and, and that is pretty much well, that's, my online presence. That's pretty much. And you have two shows at the Fringe at the moment, if you are in Edinburgh. Uh, yes, the Don't... Uh, Britain, let's talk about Godlogs. It's the one we've been talking about. Um, 2.30 at Fireside Arches, uh, wherever that is. Never heard of it. And, <laughs> Google uh, it, Fireside Arches. Uh, my new show, which is a, about sport, but also secretly about consent, uh, is uh, Talk a Big Game at Stand 4, uh, 8.15 each night. Okay, thank you so much for having tea with me. Thank you.
refrain, loudly rifle down, loudly rifle day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you the hoppers, cry up your ends. Loudly rifle down, loudly rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the Surely do for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle, dolly rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle, dolly rifle.